welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part episode with Professor Colleen Murphy on transitional justice. So in the first part, we covered the theory, and we went through the theoretical, moral, and normative concerns about how we think about justice in a society that's transitioning from an authoritarian regime or conflict or normalised wrongdoing towards a different state, and what justice requires of us for both perpetrators and victims in those circumstances. In this episode, we take a more practical look, and we compare and contrast transitional justice in South Africa and in the case of the US civil rights movement. And the argument here is there's obviously some big dissimilarities, but there are some strong parallels there that are worth thinking about. And from that, we argue for the plausibility of a lot of things that I think in our current political climate seem pretty way out there, Um, specifically the idea of reparations, both in the form of truth and reconciliation commissions for past evils such as lynching, such as redlining, such as employment discrimination, as well as possibly at least considering some sort of financial restitution for those past evils, some way of closing the the black-white wealth gap. I said in the episode, you know, I don't have a hard opinion on reparations, but, like, I find it very plausible. I'll I'll, I'll make one correction. That was a bit too soft. I basically favour reparations. I mean, of course, it depends exactly what that means and that would entail, but as a general direction, I think this is the direction we should be going in, and if that seems an outlandish view to you, then I encourage you to listen to this episode, because the more I think about it, the more it seems plausible and reasonable, and it doesn't seem like some far-left crazy idea. It seems like what a normal, moral, centrist person would come to, given the facts of our history and the demands of justice. So you may well disagree with that view, but I encourage you to listen to this episode. Uh, Professor Colleen Murphy is obviously a much more informed um, commentator on these things than I am, but this is a topic that I'm interested in pursuing on the podcast, and we will have some future episodes coming up that will reference back to this conversation as well. Talking of future episodes, I'll do a few quick updates Um, just for what's coming up on the podcast. So I have a crosscast coming up. So this is a podcast where two podcast hosts both just have a conversation with each other and both just put it out in their podcast feeds. I have a crosscast coming up with the Elucidations podcast, which is Matt from the University of Chicago. He has a great podcast, very similar to this one, where he focuses on more philosophy-philosophy questions, and I focus on more political philosophy. But we have a conversation about are there universal moral truths that every society recognises? Really fun, engaged conversation. That'll be coming out soon. Um, I also will continue the race debate with Glenn Lowry, who is an economist and commentator on race issues in America, who approaches it from a more centrist to conservative point of view. And we have somewhere between a discussion and a friendly debate, which 
I'm actually pretty happy with as an example of uh, civil discussion across ideological lines. I will also have the host of Existential Comics, uh, Corey, on. Many of you will be familiar with Existential Comics. It is without doubt the best comedy take on philosophy out there and one of the best Twitter feeds on Philosophy Twitter. He's a, an amazingly smart, funny guy who um, is also probably the most radically lefty person we've had on the show. And if you listen to the show, that is saying something. And we're going to have a series on comedy and propaganda, and we're going to take some shots at the so-called intellectual dark web. So, all of that's coming up, plus more. I have a few more interviews scheduled, so please do stay tuned for all of that. And as exciting as all of that is, and as much as I want to just rush to get these interviews to you, with everything that's been going on, I have been tempted to do some editorial podcasts, as well as some podcasts that just respond to criticism. So I've received a lot of flack for my views on social justice, Given how much I talk about race, I've sort of expected to be criticised by radical social justice warriors who say something to the effect of, well, how dare you as a white man critique, you know, or make comments about this, um, or something to the effect that I'm insufficiently radical, or I'm missing something. And by the way, I'm actually open to all of those criticisms, and I think some ways of articulating those criticisms might have some truth in them. So if you want to criticize me on that basis, please do so. You know, comment on my stuff, direct message me, email me, whatever. I've actually not received any of those criticisms. I've received criticisms from, I cannot help noticing, young white men who tell me that I'm a totalitarian, that I'm evil, that um, I'm a neo-Marxist, um... Be because I've done stuff like identify as a feminist, and I want to try and respond to this in good faith. I'm not necessarily sure it was proffered in good faith, but I'm not saying what I'm saying about social justice to try and score points. I'm saying it because I think it's right, I think it's grounded in history and the best understandings of what the demands of morality and justice are, and I'm open to changing my mind if I'm getting either the historical facts or the moral values wrong, but I haven't seen anything in these criticisms that's persuading me that I am. Like I say, I do have a conversation with a very intelligent, very well-informed conservative black commentator, Glenn Lowry, and you can make what you will of that. But the criticisms do just seem to be some of the worst stereotypes of feminists and social justice warriors and so on. So I do want to try and answer some of those. The other thing I was thinking of doing is doing some editorial podcasts where I play together some clips from past episodes as a way of giving commentary on a current issue. So if you're listening to this in the week it came out, it looks very likely that we are about to lose the Kavanaugh confirmation fight, which is depressing for all sorts of reasons, both because there were credible claims of sexual assault against him which is obviously, I would argue, disqualifying. But also, this is just going to mean that the court moves significantly rightward. And I've got a lot to say about this, but I don't just want to do an episode that's me blathering on. Well, I mean, if you want me to do episodes that are me blathering on, then, you know, that's more than 
I, I can do those as well. But we've talked about the Supreme Court a fair amount on this show, but intermittently. So I talked about it a little bit with Zephyr Teachow. We touched on it and its role in the American ideological construct with Michael Frieden. And we talked about it again with Orlando Patterson. So I wanted to do an episode on the role of the court, what this means for the left, what this means for the future, also what it means for the right and what I think is happening in the conservative ideological tradition right now. I think we're doing a lot of analysis and self-criticism and self-reflection on the left. We need to do some hard-nosed objective scrutiny about what's happening on the right. Um, But to do that commentary drawing on the expertise of all of the amazingly qualified and knowledgeable and intelligent people some of really the, the world's most qualified commentators to talk about this stuff that we've had on this show. And so if you'd be interested in that sort of editorial podcast, um, I'm thinking of putting one of those together on the future of the Supreme Court and what that means for the American left and the American right. And I also am considering doing one maybe for the midterm elections and future events as they come up. So... That wasn't something I was able to do before, but now we do have, I think we're getting up to 30 interviews. I am considering drawing on them as a resource. So if you're interested in that, let me know. Okay, that was a bit of a long introduction. Let's just jump straight into into today's conversation, the case for reparations. If you want to hear the introductions and the general theoretical framework, Uh, please do go back and check out the first part of this conversation, Transitional Justice. But I do think this conversation also just stands as a a standalone piece by itself. So, um, yeah, welcome to part two of my conversation with Professor Colleen Murphy, The Case for Reparations. that gets brought up the most with this is South Mm -hmm. Africa and in researching this and thinking about it I was struck by it's not a perfect similarity there's many dissimilarities but how many aspects of this model would fit onto the US case and are actually not completely dissimilar from the South African case Um, just first do you want to is there any points you'd want to broadly make about applying this model to South Africa specifically, and why? Yeah, is there any points you'd want to make broadly about applying this model to South Africa? So I guess um, one um, one point is that just South Africa, in the way that it navigated the transition away from apartheid to democracy, um, became an extraordinarily influential model um, for trans, uh, of transitional justice for both philosophers and for um, transitional justice scholars. And the reasons why it was influential was in part because um, um, 
the transition from apartheid to democracy was was such an important event in global politics that you know after apartheid had been a source of global outrage indeed apartheid's a crime against humanity um and and it seemed almost impossible to end absent violent revolution yet here was this negotiated transition i mean it was an enormous um moment um an event in 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 global politics and I think what the other reason why it became of interest specifically to philosophers was because of how the South African Truth and Reconciliation operated. So it was established through an act of parliament to um, investigate and document gross human rights violations that were committed inside or outside of South Africa during the period of 1960 to 1994. And it focused specifically on killing, abduction, torture, and severe ill treatment. And as part of its operation included an amnesty provision, which the interim, um, the negotiations leading to the interim constitution that paved the way for democratic elections required. And the amnesty provision stipulated that a perpetrator could be granted amnesty if um, he or she made a full disclosure of the acts for which he or she was responsible that fell under the mandate, so killing, abduction, torture, and severe ill treatment. Um, and could show that the acts were done for political reasons, either to defend the apartheid state or to oppose it and and, and worked for its towards its overthrowing. And I think what was so interesting was not only um, that there was this choice to have a truth commission. There had been other truth commissions, but none that were as public or had the same powers or the same degrees of participation, but also because the process of the TRC was framed in explicitly moral terms, explicitly not as an exercise of retribution, but as um, a, 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 an act of restoration a process of restorative justice that would bring reconciliation in South African society by exposing the truth about what happened in the past. So it it um, opened the door, this very public moral justification of this process and its seeming success in, in solidifying the South African tr transition um, to a lot of discussion about how we think about the plausibility of, of thinking of this as an instrument of restorative justice, um, an instrument that may or may not have justifiably sacrificed retribution. So it, it, it's a case that sort of shaped the subsequent literature on transitional justice to open up possibilities for non-punitive responses to legacies of wrongdoing, to think about um, the aims and the purposes for which these processes were done and bring reconciliation really into a central focus is one of the things that you're trying to achieve. It also was the subject of a lot of critique so, um, you know, one of the main critiques by scholars like Mahmoud Banbadani were that it um, failed to actually deal with apartheid itself, with the institutionalized discrimination on racial grounds that violated fundamental human rights and freedoms and seriously disadvantaged the black population, that that itself was a crime that wasn't recognized by the TRC and most perpetrators of that crime of the forced laws and or the past laws and the forced removals got impunity. So it's also been the, the point of conversation about the de-emphasis of economic inequality and economic injustice in transitional justice practice and leading to conversations about 
whether that's justified or whether greater emphasis on um, economic inequality and economic wrongdoing needs to be part of a, a greater central focus. So that's sort of South Africa, why um, why it's been so incredibly powerful and salient in shaping conversations about transitional justice. But if you want to look at the U.S., it's also salient for a different reason, and that's because of the ways in which the U.S. and South Africa have so many strong parallels in our histories. So if you look at—so when I, in fact, teach transitional justice, I always teach South Africa under apartheid in parallel with Jim Crow U.S., because you have two systems of pervasive structural inequality where you have racial segregation that was legally— um, recognized and upheld in public facilities and education and housing. You had job discrimination and wage discrimination and the economic inequality just that to, this... Just to jump in, I'm surprised yeah. the analogy doesn't get made more often because it, the U.S. is maybe... But it, I was going to say the process happens earlier, but it's only like 20 years earlier. It's not... You know what I mean? It's not... And then if you look at the actual conditions on the ground... We say American segregation, but apartheid is just as good a word in some senses. It, it just carries it a is. stronger moral force. But it the, the, is. you have, I mean, yeah, yeah. Go go ahead with the, the no, point. No, no. I make. mean, it's interesting, and and you have, you know, you have the the normalized wrongdoing. One form of which was lynching, right? The systematic lynching of Black Americans, where you had police who were either complicit in or sometimes participants in lynching, not protecting blacks from But, from but the lynching thing, um, yeah. I just had um, Orlando Patterson on the podcast, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. he's got a wonderful and terrifying book called Rituals of Blood, which is specifically mm-hmm. about lynching. And it's not just like a blind eye was turned to lynching, which happened, but in a minority of lynchings that I think get the phrase of, like, carnival lynchings, you, you have, they're, they're announced in the newspapers several That's days right. in advance. That's so, right. Um, railway companies sell discount yep. tickets to attend. Thousands of people you, watch. You, in, in some cases, as many as 10,000 people, including yep. the mayor, a senator, yep. the local yep. priest will come and say a prayer beforehand. Yep. It, it's not just an event that society and the law turns a blind eye to. Right. It's an event, and again, this is a minority of lynchings, but it's an event that mementos were taken afterwards. Um, And this goes way into, like, the lynchings go into the 60s. The the, the sort of carnival lynchings maybe into, like, the 20s, but still. That's right. Possibly within, maybe just outside of living memory. Um, It's not just that society turns a blind eye. Society actively supports and is is complicit so it it absolutely meets your criteria of normalized wrongdoing right oh that's right no that's absolutely right i i I, um i'll have to to read the book that you just referenced i often have my student always actually have my students read philip dre's book um in the hands at the hands of persons unknown the lynching of black america and it has some cases of the spectacular lynching that you were talking about where people come from mass and go on the train because there's a lynching that's going to happen and and they want to see it so I think, um, you know, it's interesting that um, in a documentary, A Long Night's Journey and Today, about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of the South African um, security f- officials who uh, applied for amnesty talked about watching Mississippi burning 
and he talked about how seeing apartheid, and he called America apartheid, and it, it occurred to him for the first time that the business of police was not assassination. So I think that um, there are enormously strong, uh, you know, uh, disanalogies to um, U.S. In the United States, it was separate um, but equal, at least as a matter of principle, and that was never the case in South Africa. But one other important difference is that the U.S. has never dealt with our past in the way that South Africa very intentionally did. And so, so I, the, you know, the truth and reconciliation thing, just before we get there, yeah. I was working through your model and applying it. It, it, yeah. it seems clear to me that you've got the first two conditions are clearly there. Right. Structural right. inequality and right. normalized collective and political wrongdoing. Right. The second two are more dubious, but I don't, I, I don't think entirely absent in that existential uncertainty mm-hmm. and fundamental uncertainty about authority Mm-hmm. And the, the U.S. case is distinct in that, you know, the constitutional big picture right. order stays in place. But you right. still do have a fundamentally radical reorganization of society. And at the time, in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and so on, the existential certainty, maybe not as quite as much as South Africa, but it's not absent either. A lot of the radicals, and not just black radicals, but anti-war people, feminists, mm-hmm. all the different radicals, were pursuing something like the end of the American state. And the conservatives, and don't get me wrong, my natural sympathy will be with the radicals, but the conservatives, to some sense, are looking at, like, is this the dissolution of America? And that's where their head is. And that's what they're... And at the, you know, in retrospect, we can say, don't be silly. Of course, it's not the dissolution of America as we know it. But they didn't know that at the time. And there is a sort of fundamental... And I think we can say so much that's gone wrong with America. Um, and I'm about to say some controversial things. So I'm just going to jump into this with two yep. feats. But it seems like to me there's two forms of denialism that Americans have about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. One form of denialism was just how bad some of this stuff was. Mm-hmm. And people are very reluctant to talk about, like, the lynching stuff we just mentioned. The other form of din- denialism seems to be the idea that people who've read the new Jim Crow by name only and want to insist that nothing has changed and everything's as bad as it was are just not taking into account how impressive... Which is not to say racism still doesn't exist, of course it does, but how impressive the transformation we achieved was in that you got in a period of about a generation a complete reorganisation of how these things work. And there was recently, I forget the case, something that people called a modern day lynching in that these absolute Oh, I'll give you another example. There were some mm. absolute neo-Nazi racists who attended a children's party, mm-hmm. a black children's party, and got out with shotguns and started shouting racial epithets. And a lot of people said, well, look, this proves nothing has changed. But here's the difference. Those people were roundly condemned by the community. They were immediately arrested and they were imprisoned. And I watched the woman who did it cry in court. And as much as I don't really go in for retributive justice, I just remember thinking, well, good, that's what you get. (laughs) Um, But the difference is those were criminals and they were treated as such. And the societal transformation whereby people who do that are lions of the community to people who do that of criminals that has been achieved almost entirely without violence, not only without violence, but without fundamentally changing our overarching political structure 
but has, is amazing, and it occurred within a generation, and it occurred largely in spite of the fact that most white Americans were opposed to it. I, so on the one hand, I think we don't give ourselves enough blame for how bad things were. On the other, I sometimes think we don't give ourselves enough credit for how remarkable that transformation was, albeit without the truth and, truth and reconciliation part. Yeah, so I, I think, I mean, I would agree with with um, a lot of what you said. I think that that the the civil rights movement did and was intentionally trying to generate the kind of uncertainty that can open up the possibility for real profound changes to the status quo. So, I, you know, I, I talk in my book about how serious existential uncertainty can be a good thing precisely because of the ways in which it creates opportunities for calling into question the status quo in ways that absent that uncertainty, if you're just, you've got the maintenance of dictatorship or conflict becomes much harder to do or, or ongoing entrenched inequality. I think that, um, and I also think that you're right that, um, it's a mistake to either, um, sanitize the past or refuse to look at how, um, unjust it truly was and the ways in which, you know, the practices of lynching implicated uh, were large sections of the white population in ways that aren't often talked about or even widely known. Um, And at at the same time, not think that nothing has changed um, because things clearly have. We don't have um, the same kind of de jure segregation that we had before. We have greater rates of participation politically that we had before. But I think um, we still have problems that are connected to or can be should be seen as legacies and consequences of Jim Crow that haven't been dealt with um, and in part haven't been dealt with and aren't even seen as, as consequences of Jim Crow because of the ways in which the U.S. didn't have any process of transitional justice. So I think the Civil Rights Act was forward-looking, right? Looking at ways in which there could be a prohibition on wrongdoing that had been permitted in the past, be it in terms of segregation or voting requirements, um, et cetera. But because we never looked at what the consequences of Jim Crow were, um, and the wrongdoing that Jim Crow involved, we um, don't have, we haven't sufficiently set in place conditions that could prevent um, duplication, not of identical justice, but of uh, 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 maintenance of justice, that injustice that is not too different in kind. So if you think about the concern, for example, about the disproportionate um, killing of black men and boys and 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 black women by the police in the United States. You know, part this is a there is a history of a failure of legal protection um, that lynching represented. That 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 the current um, protests right are calling attention to a failure of protection and and indeed a vulnerability to harm um, that's ongoing. And to be clear, nothing about my sort of view of just how remarkable the civil rights movement was 
is to say that the results of it have been perfect or even complete. Oh yeah, no, no, and I didn't take you. Yeah. I didn't take you to be saying that. So, but I, I think that it, we can see the benefits of there being now, though there were not then. Um, if we could have them processes for reckoning with the past to just recognize, you know, also when it comes to ongoing um, gaps in in wealth held by. Um, white Americans vis-a-vis black Americans, right? And and the studies on the years it would take to close that. Well, if you think about the consequences of wage discrimination and segregation and um, inequality in schools and in employment opportunities, you know, that puts a different context to explaining why we find the gaps that we find. Let's maybe close with the wage cap, but just before we do, I want to dwell on the idea of truth and reconciliation a bit more. Because one of the distinctive things when you study America as a matter of, say, comparative government or something like that, is it's at least very plausible that the primary social cleavage in America is race, which is to say the primary voting divide, social divide, whatever. Whereas then maybe arguably in the UK it's class or something like that, right? Yeah. Um... And to an extent, social cleavages are inevitable and not always completely undesirable, but it seems like this one is is unusually strong and deep from the point of view of comparative government. And it seems to me, at least, like if we had done some sort of true, and maybe it's not too late to do it, although in the present climate I've no idea how, um, some sort of true truth and reconciliation where it's not even about punishment, but let's go... And, you know, maybe give amnesty to the, you know, the survivors who were doing the lynchings and get it on the record and get it known and make it a matter of public consciousness is that it seems to me, let's just talk about white America for a a minute, in that I'm not talking about like making white people feel bad and there's a process of like white guilt on the left that can be kind of obnoxious sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about an awareness of history because if you take a sanitized view of history, the reaction that like the Trump voter has to Black Lives Matter starts to make sense. If it were not the case that we'd had these systemized lynchings, if it were the case that we ended slavery 180, 200 years ago, and nothing bad had happened since then, if that were the true state of facts in the world, then yeah, Black Lives Matter would be a horrendous overreaction that was politically divisive, needlessly so, and honestly, they just need to shut up and go away, if that were history. And I think the reason people sometimes have such a bad reaction is they just don't know the history. And if we had had that process of truth and reconciliation, it's not that we wouldn't still have divides, but there would be a greater awareness of where protesters today are coming from. And I think because people don't know the history, they're just like, are you kidding? We've had equal rights for generations now. And we need that. We need not as a matter of like, oh, I feel so bad that it's happened, or, like, you individually are a bad person. But no, this is the historical context and contemporary context that people are responding to. Um, I talked for a bit, but does that make sense? No, I think think it's absolutely right. I think that, um, you know, Jeremy Waldron, in his piece on superseding historic injustice, talks about the importance of, of, of symbolic reparations, one point of which can be as a reminder, as a guard against tales of self-satisfaction, right? Where we try to explain why 
things are the way they are in terms of the consequences of, of individual merit, right? So that the people who are doing well deserve to be doing well and those who are not deserve not to be doing well, instead of seeing um, the actual historical story about how we got to the place that we're at. And I think, yeah, I think that that um, we will never get any kind of meaningful reconciliation in American society or transformation of political relationships that help us move beyond the deep cleavage that still remains along racial lines until we meaningfully and publicly and officially deal with our past. Because then it does tell us, it reminds us, as you were just saying, not who we had, we would have liked to have been, but who we actually were, what we actually did, and the actual historical context that that put us in the position that we're in today. Um, and I think conversations change dramatically about what to do moving forward. That's not to say there won't be disagreement. There can be profound disagreement, uh, disagreement that remains about how to think about dealing with legacies of the past. But at least if you have a public understanding of what that past was, um, that's honest, right? Those conversations, I think, are richer and um, can lead to a much more productive place than conversations that just erase or deny history. Yeah. There's a big broader point here, which is this isn't specific to black people. We are all situated within history. We are all, mm -hmm. and not just like our economics or whatever, how we think about the world and the concepts and categories through which we interpret social reality, the ways we think about individualism, rationality, freedom, are highly unusual historically. They're very unique to our time mm -hmm. and place. So even like you know, your, how you basically break down the world, the language you use to describe of that. All of that is just the end result of this historical process. And I think we could stand to be more self-aware of that in general. I mean, in this mm -hmm. specific case, it's a very clear case of where a bit right. of historical context right. would do us some good. But just in general, I think we'd be a little bit moraler and a little bit wiser to look at the history of political thought and look at the structures that brought us here and just have a little bit of self-awareness that something like rational self-interest is not a natural axiomatic property of people, which is not to say it's always wrong. It's a particular social construct that appears in a particular time and place. And I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that's part of what Charles Mills is really pushing in his latest book too, for philosophers and political philosophers in particular to grapple with the history of, um, not only, um, political thought and political, um, uh, f philosophy, but the sort of, um, the, the historical context in which those ideas were articulated and um, and take more seriously the racism that many historical philosoph philosophical figures um, had and and defended and sort of you know not engage in tells of philosophical self-satisfaction again drawing on Waldron's language to be honest about the history of ideas that got us to where we're at when we think about questions of justice. So to close with then, we talked about symbolic reparations, mm -hmm. but when reparations is normally used, the idea is economic. So I don't have the figures in front of me, but I believe the wealth gap is 
depending on exactly how you measure it, like the average black family has between four and $8,000 in wealth, and that's an average. Many have almost none at all. And then the average white family is something like $100,000 right. yeah. in, in wealth. And again, that's an average. That's not to say there aren't some white people who have basically nothing. Of course there are. But you can debate the origins of that wealth gap, and I think liberals would want to say, you've got to look at stuff like redlining, you've got to look at stuff mm-hmm. like the exclusion of blacks from the sort of New Deal policies that created mm-hmm. so much wealth for white people. Conservatives would want to say, oh, but y- y- there also is some individual responsibility. You've got to mm-hmm. look at wealth transmission mechanisms like the mm-hmm. nuclear family, higher divorce rates, different spending patterns. But even in the conservative case, even if I were to grant that there might be behavioural differences that account for some of that gap. Those behavioural differences didn't arise in a vacuum and are still, in many ways, likely, it seems to me, cultural responses to historical oppression and to historical Mm -hmm. exclusion. Mm -hmm. So however you map it out, the ultimate historical and moral responsibility, or at least the large share of it, does fall with past oppression and we're not even going back to slavery here. We're going back mm-hmm. to like policies in the fifties. Right? Um, does that open the door to some? I don't have a final opinion on this, but I think it's at least credible to some sort of large-scale redistribution of wealth on racial lines. I think it's a policy that should be considered if you're serious about transforming relationships, and um, and serious about trying to establish threshold levels of opportunities for participation, for avoiding poverty in ways that engage with historic injustice, I think that's an option that has to be on the table. Yeah. So I did a bit of back of the envelope math because I think people think, what, you're going to just give every black family $80,000 or something? If you made the assumption that 70% of um, black families in America can trace their heritage, they're not immigrants or whatever, they can trace their heritage back to at least redlining, if not slavery. And then within that, about 80% of the wealth gap is due to historical injustice, and you just compensate it on that basis. It would cost about $2 trillion, which is nothing to sneeze at, but that's about what this latest tax cut cost. (laughs) Right? It's about what the Iraq war cost. It's about what Obama's stimulus cost. Mm-hmm. And the US government regularly overspends its revenues by half a trillion dollars a year anyway. So, yeah, it'd be a lot of money to put on the credit card, but we could do it. And if you think about the opportunity cost of what we could do, we've spent $2 trillion to rejig the tax codes and to lower the corporate tax rate, right? Which is desirable for some reason. Would rep- would an economic reparations for redlining and slavery have been a better use of that money? It seems inarguable that it would have been, right? I think I always think of budgets are moral documents, so they tell you where your priorities are as a community, and um, and what matters. And I think the absence of any meaningful conversation about policies, or t- let alone taking seriously proposals like the kind that you're. Um, um, suggesting are, are just an indication of the fact that we don't yet have the understanding of why dealing with historic wrongdoing matters as a moral priority for our community. So I think whatever can be done by way of generating 
recognition of the ongoing demands that historic injustice continues to make on us. I don't agree with Waldron's line that we ever supersede it. Um, And of the reality of the historic injustice that we need to still deal with and the moral demands from its aftermath. That's a first step to then being in a position where where the proposal of the kind that you're making could be um, politically plausible and not just morally desirable. So I think that's where the, the, you know, the political conversation generating that is where American society needs to go next. Which it does not seem even remotely politically plausible right now to have that conversation, at least in a mainstream sense. No. Well, you know, there are some who want to continue to make it. And I think one thing about the current political moment is that it, it underscores in a way that is impossible to ne- deny the way, how race continues to be um, especially salient in American life and American politics and um, underscoring the work that needs to be done for relational transformation of the kind that I lay out in my book to become a real- reality for American society. Great. That was great. Let's pause it there just before we okay. go. If people want to um, follow you or read your work, where should they go? You're on, you're on Twitter, right? I'm on Twitter, right. So my Twitter handle is um, at Dr. Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y. And then um, I that that's where the best information about me and I, I tweet a lot about transitional justice. So if you're interested in following what's going on around the world on that topic, that's that's a good place to go. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time today and for walking me through a subject I'm not crazy familiar with. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Toby. This was great. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then there's lots of ways to follow us. You can uh, subscribe on iTunes, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, you can subscribe on RSS feed, and you can also get it from all of the usual places where you get podcasts. So we should be up on almost all of the main different podcasting apps. So look for us there. And please do subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the more able we are to get great guests on. So it does help us out. Um, So even if you're already following us on Twitter, consider subscribing on one of those channels. And that helps keep the podcast strong and keep getting great guests on. I'll also mention um, the positive reviews on iTunes are also pretty useful. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I've been tweeting, I guess is the verb, a little bit more recently. I've been putting some philosophical stuff out there, as well as just general commentary on the world. So do follow me on Twitter and interact. Like, I actually have had... People say you never have productive exchanges about politics on social media. I've actually had some productive exchanges recently. Um, I had this huge, like, 200-comment Facebook post Um, I think that was on my personal Facebook that went up recently, that was actually very civil and informed and was a really great discussion and 
I've got some really great comments on my Twitter feed as well. So I, I disagree with this notion that you can't have intelligent, informed conversations on social media. I think it's more who you're having them with than the medium. But talking of which, yes, you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter as well. And I encourage you to do so. We're having some having some fun on social media, actually, currently. I have become everything. I will share this with you, dear audience. I have become everything I ever feared I might be. I have become someone who's concerned with how many social media followers they have. I have I have looked into the abyss, and the abyss has looked back into me, and I have that thing where Spider-Man becomes the awful, obnoxious, whatever he becomes. That, 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 that has happened. So, feed my ego by following me on Twitter, I want to get to a 1,000 followers there because, I don't know, it's a big round number and that seems important to me for, you know, reasons. If you want to support the podcast in a more sustained way, lots of great ways you can do that. Uh, sharing always helps. Um, this is a niche thing. I don't expect everyone to be into a long-form interview series about political philosophy. But there are some people who've really liked it and found value in it. So please do help me get it out there to them as well. If you want to support in a more monetary way, then we have a Patreon account. It's super easy to do. For regular listeners, I suggest a donation of $2 an episode. Or whatever seems right to you. And the analogy there is if you get the same enjoyment or even the same bitterness and bad taste in your mouth from this show as you do from a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on about the same level. I live in New York where even the worst coffee start at $2, but you know, do the purchasing power parity math and work out what's right for you. And as always... Big thank you to everyone who does sponsor us on Patreon and everyone who does share episodes. You've made it possible to get to the point where we have thousands of followers. Someone asked me recently, no, do people actually listen to your podcast? And I was like, yeah, 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 we got followers. And I was like, I don't know, maybe like five to 10,000, something like that. And I, I, I hadn't said it out loud before. And once I said it out loud, I was like, yeah, this is actually a thing now. And... That's really much more to the extraordinary guests that we've had on than it is to me. And it's also to the people who've sponsored it. You've helped me cover the costs of hosting and so on, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And to everyone who's shared. We would not be past getting the first hundred followers was the hardest. It really was. We would not have graduated beyond that, but for people just hitting that share button. Really, that has been the single biggest thing that's allowed this to be a mainstream forum for public philosophy and to have these sorts of conversations and get them out there. So thank you to everyone who's shared. And if you like this, please do subscribe and whatever. Please do sponsor. That's great. But if you're not able to sponsor right now, just hitting that share button is so powerful. So please do that. Um... I'm not sure if next week will be the crosscast or something different, so stay tuned to social media. I'll announce that in the next few days. Other than that, I did kind of long introductions and outroductions, outroductions, outros to this episode. Um, I'll try and avoid that in future episodes and give you just 
I don't know about you, I always get super bored when I listen to a talk online and the person introducing it goes on for more than five minutes and I just say, skip, skip, skip. And I imagine people do the same with this. So I'm sorry to uh, have interjected myself in this one. I'll try to keep them more uh, time-bound going forward so you just get more of the fantastic guests and less of the, the obnoxious British guy. But, you know, someone commented that their favourite bit was the introduction to this show. And I mean, hey, you know, each to their own, I guess. Um, I I doubt that's the the uniform view. I don't know. Give me your feedback. I love feedback. Anyway, that's enough of me for one day. I hope you'll all join me next week. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 